Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. We're really excited to have the author joining us today so that we can discuss his submission with him. But before we chat with Harvey, Carly... A reminder, this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and is not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. Thank you so much, Carly. Okay, now we're going to go to Harvey. Harvey, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to dive straight in and ask you to read us your query letter. Okay. Dear Cece... I am seeking representation for The Social Worker, a 60,000-word police procedural. This mystery follows the first civilian in a new police program that partners social workers with law enforcement officers. Readers of Michael Connolly will enjoy the authentic procedural elements, while fans of Elizabeth Gunn's Sarah Burke series will find the contentious and sometimes humorous relationship between the protagonist and his co-workers satisfyingly familiar. Will Drager, a former high school teacher and unabashed idealist, begins his new career as a social worker partnered with Sylvia Garcia, a Marine-turned-deputy who has little patience for him and even less for his ideals. The tension between them escalates when they find young Krishan Lewis shot to death in an apartment building he had no business being in. The mystery of his death gets all the attention the homicide investigators can spare, which is to say, none. For Will's first major case, this is a baptism of fire. Unless he can learn how to work with Garcia and bring his own unique talents into play, the new social worker program will die in the cradle. 
Worse, his failure will end any hope of justice for the murdered man's family. As a crisis negotiator, police officer, and now an instructor with the large metropolitan police department, I have placed handcuffs on murderers, chased fleeing felons through downtown streets, and once spent three hours debating the merits of various baba ganoush recipes with a young man who started off the evening with the intention of harming himself. My involvement with my own department's integrated social worker program has uniquely positioned me to see the challenges, conflicts, and ultimately the hope these new partnerships bring to the job, elements I have woven throughout the social worker. I have recently been published in Everyday Fiction, Mystery Weekly, Black Cat Mystery Magazine, Black Cat Mystery Weekly, and the Spring 2023 Fear Forge Anthology. In 2022, one of my stories was selected for the honor roll in Otto Penzler's The Best Mystery Stories of the Year. When not working or writing, I fill my time by playing with my two dogs and designing elaborate custom board games each year for Halloween. I have included the first five pages below. The full manuscript is available upon your request. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, me. Wonderful, Harvey. Thank you so much for that. Okay, Cece, since this was directed at you, can you give us your take on that? Harvey, you did such a good job of reading that. So thank you. Thank you. That was really, really good. Your first paragraph is perfect, so I have no notes on that. Let's focus on plot paragraph and then author paragraph. Right now, what do I know about the story? I know everything about the setup in a really interesting way. We have a power imbalance. We have a social worker and a police officer. And I already know that's going to be filled with juiciness and potential for drama. And that's excellent. And I know about the inciting incident, which is, again, very, very interesting and appealing. It sounds wrong to say that murder is appealing. But yeah, in, in a story, murder is appealing. So also excellent. The problem is that I know nothing about the plot after the inciting incident. Like we basically stopped at the inciting incident. We have character after the inciting incident. We have the fact that, you know, it feels like baptism of fire for him. We have the fact that the, the police department, like they don't have the resources or the time to pay attention to this because probably they're overwhelmed. I don't know. We have the fact that if he doesn't do this, the program will die. That's very big picture, right? And of course, the fact that the person who was murdered, his family won't get justice. Again, very big picture, very character. I'm wondering how does the plot get more complicated after the inciting incident? And that's something I really, really wanted to see. And especially in a story that's centered on murder, whether that's a murder mystery or a police procedural, it's really important to make sure that that first death is really just a starting point for more complications and more plot escalation. That's something I really wanted to see. I would recommend kind of chopping up or, or trimming a few of the lines in your plot paragraph that in my opinion are longer than they have to be. The mystery of his death gets all the attention the homicide investigators can spare, which is to say none. For Will's first major case, it is a baptism of fire. This is so well written, but it's just taking up more words than we need. So I would remove that and I would just focus on, again, plot points. And then author paragraph. First of all, so impressive. And you're exactly the right person to write the story because you know police procedurals, the amount of police procedurals I get that even I have zero law enforcement experience. I can tell they're wrong. Like just from having gone to law school, I know. I'm like, no, no, you didn't do any research. This is wrong, you know? And so you're perfect to write the story because I won't, you know, when I read it, I won't be like, oh, plausibility issue, which again can really be distracting. So so that's awesome. I don't think, I'm going to be very honest here, I don't think we need two paragraphs on it. So here's what I would do. I would rewrite this in the following way. The first paragraph that's dedicated to your author bio, make it one sentence, something like this. 
In writing The Social Worker, I tapped into my experience as a crisis negotiator, patrol officer, and now an instructor with a large metropolitan police department in North Carolina, period. And then go to your your writing accolades. We do not need more detail than that. And it's not that I don't want to hear more in the agent call or when you give interviews about this book, like you will discuss this in more detail. When your agent submits this, they will probably ask you to include a little letter and you'll be able to talk more about your experience there too. Just not in the query letter, just because again, valuable real estate, time is of the essence. So I would just, I would just trim that. If you look at it, you're spending more words on you than on the story. And I don't think that that's the right move. Even though I know that technically you're not talking about you, you're talking about your experience as it pertains to the story. So like I totally get the motivation or at least what I'm perceiving to be the motivation. And it's smart. It's smart to include that lived experience. I just don't think we need as much detail. Thank you, Cece. Before we hand over to Carly, I'm interested in the word count. 60,000 words for a police procedural is quite on the short side. And that ties into what you were saying, Cece, about what happens after the inciting incident. Because remember, writers are made in Act 2. It's pretty easy to write a really good beginning and it's pretty easy to write a really good ending. But where you lose readers often is in that Act 2. So Cece, we'll chat with Harvey about that shortly after we've heard Carly's feedback. What's your take on that word count? It's a note that I had when I was going to discuss the pages because I feel like there's a layer missing to the pages, which I will not spoil now. And I think that there's room to add. Can you write a good police procedural in 60,000 words? Yes, you can. It could be a tighter story. It is possible. I believe it's a genre that can be done in that word count. But for my taste, I really love stories where we go into people's psyche and I think that there's opportunity to do that here. So it would, it is on the shorter side. Like, you know, I'm reading this, I'm imagining that I'm reading this in my query inbox and I'm going, hmm, shorter side, but not shorter problematic, not necessarily like, oh, 40,000 words, you know, like you can do it in 60. I just don't know. It's, this is interesting. I love that we have you here, Harvey, because we'll get your take on like, is there enough plot or do you maybe need more plot? And maybe there is enough plot, but you can still use more words because you can use more interiority. So we'll definitely chat about that. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, and the good news, Harvey, is it's always so much easier to add words than what it is to take them out. It's when you add 100,000 words and we're saying, oh, this needs to be 80,000, that it starts becoming difficult. Okay, Carly, handing across to you. All right. So since Cece focused on the middle and the author bio, I'm going to start at the top and focus a little bit on the top. So title. I don't think this is the right title, and I will tell you why. The Social Worker, very straightforward. This is very nonfiction to me. I care a lot about SEO, you know, like if somebody's going to be Googling the social worker and Google, it's like, oh, social workers are going to come up. Like you're not elevating the opportunity for like your SEO to be increased when they're thinking, oh, so I think it should be the blank social worker, right? So it's just like the adjective noun. I'm thinking like the silent patient, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it, it's the patient, but it's like, oh no, it's the silent patient. That's what makes that book, the book, like the title, the title, the cover, the cover, right? All of that. So I'm asking you to just elevate it, brainstorm some ideas. I think like adjective noun, like the something social worker basically is what I'm trying to get at. Obviously brainstorm other ideas that fit within the genre, but I think that will be beneficial for you for standing out in a multitude of ways. Okay, and then we have the comps kind of woven in. It's like, if you like this, then you'll like that type of situation. A couple things I want to point out. You use the word conscientious and you use the word satisfyingly familiar. And I want to highlight why I think these might be problematic. They sound very comfortable. And in a way where it's like you're doubling down, right? It's like, oh, this is friendly, conscientious, right? Satisfyingly familiar, which in the sense that you're trying to align yourself with these awesome authors is great, but 
to me, it denotes a sense of like, we don't want the reader to feel comfortable. We don't want the agent to be like, oh, I am familiar with this. Therefore, I don't need you. I don't need the social worker. I, you know what I mean? Like I, I can turn to Michael Connolly or Elizabeth Gunn. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Think about those word choices a little bit and just make sure you're focusing on, again, how you can elevate this, how you can really use the X meets Y, or if you're fans of this, just in a way to say like, hey, yeah, you might've read that, but you haven't read this. And that's what I kind of want you to focus on a little bit here. Okay, and now I want to talk about his motivation, Will Drager's motivation. So he begins this new career. He's an unabashed idealist. You say again, a few lines later, his ideals. I actually don't feel like I know what his ideals are, you know, and, and his goal, like obviously to make improvements to the police force, I'm sure is the goal, but improvements in what capacity I feel really unclear. And I, I'm reading between the lines thinking, whatever this program is, it's probably a great program. This sounds like a great idea. I'm, I'm with you on that in terms of the selling of the actual concept of a social worker joining the force. And I have some questions about that later. But yeah, I'm just I'm just so curious about like exactly what the ideals are, what his motivation is for a huge career change, right? Like going from teacher to an entirely new industry where he's going to be completely fish out of water. I love unlikely friendships. So I love the idea behind this again, but I really want to know why did he want the career? Again, this doesn't have to be necessarily answered in the query letter, but we can allude to like, you know, the secrets or whatever, right. And kind of figuring out what exactly happened behind the scenes that made him, you know, experience this, this huge shift, right. Where like as a teacher of something happened in the classroom and he, you know, interacted with law enforcement and he realized like the way for him to actually reach and help kids is going to be through this program. Or he was a leader in this program. I don't know. Like Again, I'm totally going off on my own tangent of like what I think this book could be or what it is. And you are the creator of this book and you know what it is. So I will leave that with you. I agree with Cece about, you'll see my notes here about some word choices, like how we can condense some things. And then at the end, right, like the social worker program will die in the cradle, worse, his failure will end any hope of justice for the murdered man's family. Yes, awesome. But like, what's the personal connection here? Again, like, what is this saying about him that he is going to fail at this program, right? Like, not only do we not want the program to fail, he doesn't want to be a failure. I I just feel like we're a bit surface level and it's like, why does it matter? You know, what are these ideals? Like, what is he fighting? Like that fight, you know, I just don't feel like he's a fighter on the page and I I need him to be a fighter. And if he's not, maybe again, I'm speculating and I'm making him a character that he's not. I have a feeling he's a fighter because he's getting himself into this situation. And I have a feeling, you know, again, we need strong protagonists in police procedurals, right? Again, because these two are going to butt heads and there's again, the unlikely friendship element here. So that's what I would suggest that we focus on. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Harvey, we're handing it across to you now. It would be wonderful to hear some answers to these questions because the more information you can give us, the more likely we are to be able to help you and and make suggested changes to the query letter. So over to you. So uh, both of you guys were super helpful with that, particularly Carly. Some of the questions that you have are major plot points later in the story. So that makes me feel good that I'm moving in the right direction with that. As far as the query, my toughest thing for me was freeing up enough words to be able to do some of the things that you're suggesting. And you had some really good points on how to condense parts in there. Having not had an agent before, I don't know about that follow-up. So that's something that you added to my base of knowledge over here. So thank you guys very much for that. That was very kind and helpful. Are you able to give us some of those plot points, Harvey, in terms of telling us why he wanted to do this, why it's so important to him, what's at stake, so that we can perhaps suggest what can be included in the actual query letter? 
so as far as Will, the, the former teacher, he, he begins, as you saw on the pages, in a very contentious relationship with Garcia, and she continues to try and push him to not be so passive and to come out of his shell. Well, the reason that he got fired from being a teacher is because he did that. He didn't like how one of his administrators was treating a student. And so when he stood up for him, he was fired. And that aligns very closely with the way that Garcia sees her job as a police officer. And that's what eventually helps bring them together on this case. Okay, Carly, Cece, do you have anything to add on that or any further questions? Being fired is very different than being a former high school teacher. Those are different things. Obviously, he is a former high school teacher, but him being fired tells us a lot of things and also leaves a lot for us to the imagination. So how much you lean into that is really up to you. But the fact that he was fired for standing up for what's right, I would definitely be weaving that in. So I would say, I mean, it's hard to think off the spot about where exactly that should belong. But really, when you say like a former high school teacher who was fired for maintaining his ideals, right? Because you say like unabashed idealist, right? So it's like, you, I think you can weave that in right there. Cece, do you have some ideas? I would use disgraced. I would make it a scandalous thing. It made the papers, you know, and he's he's using a different name now. And he thinks no one knows, but then Garcia looks him up and Garcia taunts him with it. And that's a curiosity seed. And you're not going to tell the reader exactly what happened in the first chapter. It's going to be more like her giving him just enough so he knows that she looked into him. And he's going to be like, oh gosh, I thought this was a clean slate. This is not a clean slate. This story keeps following me. And if you're thinking, but it wasn't a disgrace, he was doing the right thing, just write disgraced. Disgraced is vague enough that you can get away with it because if others see it as a disgrace, even if he doesn't, even if in reality it wasn't, it's still disgraced. He was still publicly, I don't know. I think this needs to be bigger in terms of the story setup. We need more juiciness in this in this specific part of his past. Also, yeah, and he's going to want to rewrite his career like legacy, right? Because if he is disgraced from that career as a human being, we are all about redemption, right? And, and we love a redemptive arc. And so he is going to have to redeem himself in his next career, which is a huge motivator. And I think also like this is great for the setup, which is essential. But like after the, we have you here. So I want to ask after the murder, what happens to the plot? Not to character. What happens to the plot? Just right after, like what's the next escalating plot point? And if you don't have that because you're still working on the story, this is totally fine. That's a fair answer. It's actually fully completed. So directly after that, Garcia and Will go separate directions on how they try and solve this and end up working against each other. And Garcia goes a more intimidating route trying to interview the local drug dealers while Will tries to start a pickup basketball game with the local community and get information that way. And both of those paths end up blowing up in their face. Okay. I think that there needs to be a way for these two paths to be mentioned in the query letter, not in detail, like we don't need to know like who the basketball game has exactly. We just need, she goes down one route, he goes down the other. And what are the dangers in each of these routes? And how do they put each other in danger? Because we need, we need them to be in danger or their loved ones. Like someone needs to be in danger because the murder already happened. And it's very sad if the family doesn't get justice, don't get me wrong, but like that can't be the only the only emotion, active emotion that's at stake here. So I think we need more on that, more on that specific plot point. You know, unbeknownst to Will, when he does X, Garcia's life is in peril. And like, dun dun, what happens? You know, something like that. I don't know. Like, I don't know enough about your story, but definitely the nuts and bolts there need to be added. So based on that, is there a point at which, you know, their, their lives are in danger or he puts her in danger or she puts him in danger? 
along the way. Like when they both go their separate routes, because what we're looking for is conflict and we're looking for tension. And if they're working against each other, like Cece says, this has got to impact them. They're actually putting each other at danger because they're not working together. Because you want to, in terms of their character arcs, you want them to get to a point where they are working with each other in order to, you know, make everything better. So what are the stakes for each of them? Like, if she doesn't get this solved, what's at stake for her? If he doesn't, what's at stake for him? As they go their separate ways and deal with it in two totally different approaches, what are the dangers that can arise? And again, what's at stake for each of them? Can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, so while this is going on, they still have to handle calls. They're a, a working a team. So as they're going through individually, kind of off the books, trying to investigate this murder that the detectives are not interested in solving, they still have to respond to domestic disputes, robberies, murders. And so in those calls, they develop out not only their relationship with each other, but a working system of how they play off of each other. So, you know, during one call, Garcia gets jumped and Will has to balance his belief in nonviolence with, do I let this person beat up my partner here? And what do I have that I can do about it? In another situation, uh, and it's, it's really the climactic moment to the whole book, Will has made inroads with a child of alcoholic parents on a domestic call. And later in the book, Garcia gets in a, a life and death fight and it ends up being his connection to that teenager that allows him to stop the fight and save her life. So what you just said there about his nonviolent ideals, that's the type of stuff I was talking about where I'm like, what is his ideals? Like, I didn't know what his ideals were. So I would include his passion for nonviolence. That is hugely at odds with police force mentality and Garcia. And again, the trouble that they're going to kind of get into as a duo. So that was a key word for me there. Before I hand over to Cece, something very important is causality, right? In a story, we don't want X is happening and A, B, and C is happening around X. We always need to think of the dominoes tipping. So A happens, which tips the domino over, and then B happens as a result of that, and C happens as a result of that. So especially in your second act, you really want to see action consequence, action consequence. So while they're going on all these other calls, those can't be satellite things that are happening around the main thing. Yeah, so in that query letter, you really want to show that causality because A happens, it leads to this, which has these consequences that were unforeseen and he wasn't expecting it and this led to whatever because you want your protagonists, as CC say, to have protagonism. Each action that they that they commit has a knock-on effect and we want to see that protagonism coming through. Cece? I'm just agreeing and my wheels are turning. You mentioned nonviolence. Would he, we've seen in recent years, a lot of protests against police officers. Would he, Will, have been a part of these protests? Would he have been photographed at a rally? Would there be tension there too? Like, is that a good way for us to introduce his nonviolent approach? I don't know. I just think you have a lot of potential with the setup. And I'm not sure you're exploring the potential enough. Maybe you are. You're just not giving it to us in the query letter. But either way, I think we need more. Great. Thank you very much. And I, I love protagonists. That's a great phrase. <laughs> Yeah, I really like what Cece said now about him perhaps protesting against the police in the past. And this is something Garcia or the rest of the force is aware of. And that is something that's backstory that can be woven in as a curiosity seat. Perhaps the day he arrives, they're all like, oh, it's this guy, you know, and we're like, oh, what's this guy? How do they know him? What did he do in the past? And we maybe make an assumption that he was arrested for something. Perhaps he was even arrested at the protest 
You know, these are all kinds of things that allow for conflict, that allows for curiosity seeds and tension. So I really like that idea of CCs. Is it something you can work in, Harvey, because you've got those extra 20,000 words? (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. All righty. So let's go to the actual pages now. Will you give us an overview of what's in them? So it starts off on Wills. He's, He's attending his roll call, his very first shift. He is not welcomed by the squad. The captain's there. He says some perfunctory and kind of self-serving words of encouragement, but by and large, it's a hostile environment. So Will responds back in his comfort zone as though he was dealing with a hostile class with limited success. He is assigned to Sylvia Garcia as his partner with this. And Sylvia makes no pains to hide the fact that she sees his position as a political appointment, a political ploy, and that he is in fact interfering with her work as she goes about it every single day. They immediately go from there out to the car where Will finds he both literally and figuratively doesn't fit in. The police car is too small for him. All the police equipment gets in his way. The bulletproof vest that he wears ends up jamming back into his throat. And he even catches Garcia in a moment looking at him with pity, but that quickly disappears when they go off to their first call, which is a domestic and a neighborhood that Will has never been in like before. Trash cans overflowing in the middle of the street, toys all over the yard. It's just generally not the type of neighborhood that he grew up in. And when they pull up to the first call, they hear an active domestic dispute going on inside. When they respond to it, they have to, Will has a a dilemma of whether or not he's going to follow his training or follow what his intentions are. And so the five pages ends right at the point where he's having to realize I'm going to have to break the rules in order to get in and do something here. Wonderful, Harvey. Thank you for that. And uh, I just want to say that I love the specificity in that scene. That's how I knew you were experienced. Just the way you spoke about how he was in this car and the thing was up in his throat, etc. I was like, these are the kind of specific details that really make a story come alive for the reader. So that was incredible. Okay, Carly, handing over to you. All right. I just want to echo that. Like, I feel from you're so respectful the way even like you're just describing the situation like it is an incredibly nuanced thing you're trying to take this huge political idea and just like bring this to fiction like I'm just giving you so much credit because I can see the work that you're doing on the page and internally to like make this come to life and just want to give you claps for that I want to say that I don't think we should start with roll call Roll call is like, it's it's kind of like somebody's first day at work, a kid's first day at school. I feel like it's a bit of a crutch to introduce the reader to the situation in a way that's like, this happens and then this happens. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we show up and we do the roll call and then this is the pairing. So I definitely want to hear what CCS Day, Bianca, yourself, like I really, that part isn't working for me. I love the, again, the, the specificity of like the cruiser, the neighborhood they go to. I love all that. I'm just so hesitant about roll call specifically as a start because it feels like obvious, number one. Number two, we know that he's going to end up with Garcia because we know that in the query letter. So it's not like, what if like, or maybe he was paired with somebody else and then Garcia comes in and then they have to be paired together. Like, I don't know. I just feel like the way that you've set up this opening is just a tad bit straightforward and obvious, right? And I think like, we're just looking, what's that element of surprise? You know, did they stumble into this partnership? I I just don't want it to feel like it was written in the stars, which I, I feel like, again, this feels like it's for the reader. Like it's not true to the story necessarily, like the heart of the story. And I just want to get at like the heart of the story. Cause I, like I said, I think you're doing really incredible work here and it's an awesome premise. And like, I can see, see there's a lot going on up here and, and I can see that on the page. I just want to make sure that it shines through. Thank you, Carly. Okay. We'll go across to Cece now. You know, to Bianca's first point about the writing, I 
want to say that I am usually reading pages and highlighting repetition and highlighting words that I feel could be stronger and more precise and more powerful. There was none of that here. Like the writing is really strong. You have a talent, you have a real talent. And the mechanics of scene were also really, really strong too. And that is a separate skill. You might have one or the other. You have both. I actually want to read a line for our listeners because it's so masterfully done. And I think everyone can learn from this. So this is Will talking to Garcia and Garcia sitting down at this point. And she is the deputy, okay? The deputy shot to her feet. At six foot three, Will towered over the woman, but the intimidation flowed strongly and in one direction, upwards. I read that and I was like, wow, because you're telling us how tall he is and how tall she is. And you're not doing it in a boring way, right? Like you're doing it in the opposite of boring. You are conveying power imbalance. You're conveying emotion. You're conveying his impression of her and how intimidating she is and how imposing she is, even though she's a tiny woman. So that was so brilliant. You could have, you know, a beginner writer would have written, he was six foot three to her, whatever her height is. And so really, really good job. And this is just one example. I have other lines that I highlighted and I was like, this is really strong. So I do want to give you kudos for that. Okay, so Carly's point about starting in the right place. Okay, that's interesting. I had not written a note about starting in the wrong place. What I tried to do is up the curiosity in the roll call. So I think we're both saying the same thing, but in different ways, which is, That roll call as is, is a bit too predictable. It's a bit too straightforward, like Carly said. So how do we change that? Yes, new scene. New scene can always work. Or if you want to try to make this scene work, a few things. One, I don't think that you are using the right word when it comes to the captain, captain speaking, captain, what's his name? Oberman. He's saying, Mr. Drager, would you like to address your new coworkers? And then everyone looks at him. And Will thinks to himself, I have to give an impromptu speech in front of everyone, like everyone who doesn't want me here. But see, Captain Oberman did not say he needed to do a speech. That was never said. All he said is, do you want to address your coworkers? Address your coworkers could be like, hi, I'm Will, happy to be here, which is kind of what he says. I actually think Captain Oberman should be kind of sneaky and like have told Will before, all you're going to have to do is sit there and wave and say hi. And then he should put him on the spot and be like, well, would you like to tell us your goals? You know, you're, we, we know you have very strong opinions about your work here and the work that needs to be done. Would you like to tell us your goal? Something like that. That way, the captain putting him on the spot, the captain like essentially being kind of a jerk, right? Would be so much clearer. And then the reader would feel so much more for Will because the reader would be like, he wasn't prepared. Like, Ken, is, can you think of anything more terrifying than having to give a speech when no one told you you were going to have to give a speech? Like, I would be crawling under the table. So I really think that there's ways to make this scene work if you're attached to the scene or starting in a different place. Again, always, always works too. We'll leave that up to you and your creator brain. I wondered if they're calling him William and not by his last name as a way to like put him in his place. Because law enforcement, I believe from my vast experience watching CSI and, and other and, and Law and Order, they usually refer to themselves in, by their last names, right? Like Garcia, etc. So they're calling him Will, William. Is that on purpose? You know, is that to like put him in his place? And I really wondered about that. My big note for you, you, like I said, great writing, great mechanics of scene. You are telling me he's nervous. There's a line that literally said he's nervous. You're showing me his trembling hands that he's trying to hide in his pockets. You're showing me that he's stammering but I'm not getting tons of interiority. And by that, I mean 
deep interiority. In its simplest form, interiority is access to your protagonist's psyche as they process information in an interesting way, right? Like that's interiority and storytelling. You have the mechanics of interesting. You have the foundation of interesting here because you have all the juiciness, all the power imbalance, but we're not getting the depth that I would need to be invested. And this might be just a CC problem, right? But I would love more specificity in his thoughts. Like what does he plan to accomplish exactly with sharp specifics? I also want more on his fears. This is a charged situation. It is his first day in a very dangerous job. So it's unfamiliar, it's charged, it's dangerous. This is like the perfect recipe for active emotions. Fear, lots of fear. Desire, lots of desire because he's there to make a change, right? So you get to really dig in and give us more. And I've highlighted the moments where I was like, well, wouldn't he be thinking of, and again, if we're going to leverage backstory to make this even more interesting, would he be thinking of the kid that, that he lost? You know, would he be thinking of the student in his former school right now? Would that person come to his mind? And I don't mean he lost because the student died or anything, but I just mean like the person he couldn't save. Would he be thinking of that? Would he be thinking to himself, my presence here is going to prevent whatever that child's name is, you know, whatever that situation was from happening again. I really just wanted more. I, I kept thinking to myself, this is, the potential is so great here and the premise is so great. But what emotions are attached? And this at every instance. So at one point he stays outside while she has to go in. And we do get a line where he's thinking to himself, he doesn't want to get shot. And that's, that's fine because no one wants to get shot. But like, does he have messy emotions attached to that? Does he feel inadequate for having to stay outside? Does he feel like a coward? Or no, does he feel like, you know, this is how it should be. Like what, what exactly is going through his psyche? I just wanted more depth. I've added questions that hopefully will guide you. And then as a minor note, there are a couple things that he's thinking that I don't know that an idealist social worker would think. I'll give you an example. This one, when they're driving through the neighborhood and they'd roll past houses that, you know, had filthy houses and dilapidated houses and houses with refrigerators in the front yard. We get all these sharp specifics. And then there's a line that reads, just when Will thought the neighborhood was hopeless, they'd roll past a house wearing fresh paint and sporting a fence without a missing picket. Homes with residents who cared. What does social worker, an idealist social worker, frame it in that way? Like residents who care, meaning the people whose houses look okay, they care. And the people whose houses don't look okay, they don't care. Because I don't think that he would. I think he probably would think they can afford to care, right? Like they have the resources, the mental space, the money. So this is what I think is really interesting about this book. And this is why I think this is a great idea. Because he's going to have to confront his own assumptions about his idealism. Because you can, you know, you can be on your high horse about idealism. And now he's going to do the job and be in neighborhoods he hasn't been in. And in that moment, is he questioning his own idealism? Did I get in, you know, over my head? Is, does he think that thought and then question the fact that he thought that thought because he knows as an idealist, like he shouldn't feel that way. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, that's what I, that's the level that I think you can get to in this project. So wait, let me try to understand. You're saying that he would think this because he has to confront the imperfection of his own idealism. Correct. Because sometimes, you know, whether whatever the idealist thought, whatever it is that you're thinking, right? It's like when you want to think that that highest version of yourself, you will have to correct your own biases and prejudices and privileges. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Does that make sense? Like he's going to go into this with his own privileges. Yeah. I do. I do. It's a very advanced, like it is brilliant because that is how human beings are. 
Like you might be anti-bad thing, but then Correct. you might have that bad thing bias, right? Like whatever the bad thing is. So so 100%. The trick is how do you convey that in a way that doesn't make the agent who's reading the first five pages think you just didn't develop this character enough, right? Like, so maybe dialogue and maybe he would accidentally slip that out of his mouth. Like maybe him and Garcia could be talking and he could be like on his high horse and then he slips that and then she calls him out on it and he has a moment of, I don't know, because I get that his character arc could be him confronting this. So in the first five pages, he can't have a revelation. So that would ruin the whole thing. He doesn't need to have a revelation. He, they can pull up and he can, based on the way the place looks, he has a preconceived idea of who lives there, right? Because we all have these biases. We go, oh, if so-and-so looks like this, or if they live here, this is what I'm expecting. But then we have the person inside be a surprise, not what we would expect from what he thought when he pulled up outside the place. So that's the kind of way that he can constantly be challenging that. Thank you for summarizing that, Bianca, in a neat, tidy way. That's what I was trying to say. Okay, we're almost running out of time and we want to give Harvey as much time to ask questions as he needs. So Harvey, we're handing it across to you. Well, first, thank you so much. You guys are so good at what you do, particularly that idea about Captain Oberman being a little bit more sneaky. I almost kind of want to stop and just start working on that. So you guys have been a, a big help for me as a, as a writer and as a person. I, I tried to leave off any extra stuff when I made my submission, but I'll tell you guys now that we've talked. When I come home from work every day, I listen to the three of y'all and it helps move me into that mindset of a writer and you've been very helpful. I've only discovered you in the last year, but I've, uh, six days a week, I catch up <laughs> on the backlog. Amazing, Harvey. Thank you for those very kind words. Is there anything like that you have a question about specifically, something we've said, or maybe you want to bounce an idea off of us before we have to go? So just very quickly, I would very much value your advice. I have submitted this a little bit before, and the agents who have been kind enough to give me personalized rejections have not liked Garcia, and that has been their sticking point. What I found personally when I was doing this, I had a very diverse group of beta readers, different ethnicities, genders, ages, education, but really the bright line was anybody who'd been in the military or dealt with law enforcement or public service got what she was doing and how she is and saw that as authentic. And anyone that just had more of a, a an academic or an office type background, you know, one person even asked me, why wouldn't he just go to HR and complain? Um, so I don't want to talk down to anybody because most of the people who would like this would be somebody with that sort of background. But I also want to make, I, I want it to be accessible for agents too. That's so weird. I really liked Garcia. Cece, Kali? Okay. My thoughts exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's just, this is just classic. Yeah, this is classic. Everybody's going to have their opinion business. I mean, the only thing I'm thinking about is that I don't know the, again, the background of the agents or anything that you, you submitted to. I think as an industry, we fall into a trap of most books are sold to women. Most books are bought by women. And so police procedurals, other kind of crime thrillers are often you know, equally read by men. So I'm trying to think, oh, if we think that this, I don't know, I'm just thinking of like, if we have gendered opinions about Garcia and how that might be, those blinders might be affecting that read. That's kind of the only thing that I'm thinking. But in five pages, it's really hard. I was also reading this for like these first five pages. So I'm really in Will's head right now. I wasn't thinking about Garcia as much as I could have been, to be honest. Cece? I really liked Garcia. I liked that she was a straight shooter. I liked that she was like, look, Captain, no. You know, like all due respect, I have these things going on. I liked the flash of pity, but only a flash, you know? 
she wasn't going to be a softie, but she's a human being. She has emotions. I do not understand that feedback, Harvey. I am sorry. I have nothing to tell you, but it makes no sense to me because I really liked Garcia. I was going to say one more note on her. I have a couple lines in my notes for you about her dialogue where I'm just like, is this the right word here? So I don't know if that's something that might be useful to you, but I did comment on Garcia's dialogue, which you'll see in your notes. Did they say what they didn't like about her at all? Or was it just like likability issue, Garcia? So from beta readers, it was likability. It was they specifically came back and said, if somebody talked to me like that at work, I would go to HR. So I don't find this a believable situation. But one of the personalized rejections that I'd gotten had talked about her being a stereotype. And for me, she's the most interesting character. I, I love her. So they had said that she had, she kind of fell into, I forgot how it was, but something along the lines of a drill sergeant, a stereotypical drill sergeant. I mean, that critique I can sort of understand. The critique in terms of getting to HR, that I don't understand. So I'm like, and anyone who reads police procedurals would also be like, no, you don't just go to HR within the police because you don't like your partner. But in terms of the stereotype, I mean, there are ways to give her quirks and unexpected things about her that you wouldn't expect from this little police officer. You know, whether it's that she, I don't know, she wears a very weird kind of lipstick or perhaps she has long nails when everybody else on the force doesn't or I don't know I'm trying to think Cece Carly like what can we give her that is unexpected so we expect her to be a bit sergeant majory but there's I don't know there's something about her that is completely unexpected so that we don't feel like we're falling into stereotype here so is this all in Will's POV like the whole yes. book right it's in his POV right so we don't really get her POV which makes it hard in terms of like sympathy empathy like all of that so I really think dialogue and character quirks is where this is going to be able to be elevated what I'm thinking is because we're not going to be in her POV and we shouldn't because Harvey should yeah. not be writing from well not should not be writing from her perspective but I understand why he isn't but how about she gets a phone call as they get in the car and maybe she is a single mom or maybe she's having problems with an ex-husband or something and we hear one side of a phone call that you know her voice softens or maybe it's the her child's principal is phoning because there's a problem at school give us something that he has access to from the outside that you know softens her in a way that we understand she's not just like this all the time she's got particular beef with him for a particular reason but show us another side of her personality in something that he can overhear or maybe as he sits down there's something on the seat like a half-written birthday card with a really lovely note I don't know there's ways to give us insight into her life that can change it. Carly CC. I love all of these ideas. I would just add, don't necessarily try to put all of them in the first five pages just because you don't want to be doing too much. I am sure that the people who said this, they it's because they read more. Like the three of us read this and no one was like, oh, she feels stereotypical. Now that you mentioned it, yes, I get that she could read as one dimensional and it's important to develop her character in other ways throughout the book, but you don't necessarily have to do it in the first five pages. You have the flash of pity and you will have curiosity seeds that we discussed and you can tie those curiosity seeds in with her. You know, you can be like, last guy was partnered with Garcia and then curiosity seed after that. Like what, it could be anything, right? But don't worry too much about the first five pages because you also don't want to ruin the absolutely fantastic flow of your scene. Yeah, and for our listeners, this is a good example again of how subjective so much of this is. What one agent really dislikes or what one beta reader really dislikes, someone else is going to love. Okay, we are now officially out of time. Harvey, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. 
You guys are amazing. Thank you so much, all of you. Right, Carly, Cece, thank you for that critique. Let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. 
Today's guest is a Sunday Times bestselling author whose novels have been translated into more than 30 languages. Her debut, The Flat Share, sold over half a million copies and changed her life completely. Her second novel, The Switch, has been optioned for film by Amblin Partners, Steven Spielberg's production company. She writes her books in the English countryside with a very badly behaved golden retriever for company. I can relate, Beth. If she's not at her desk, you'll usually find her curled up somewhere with a book, a cup of tea, and several woolly jumpers, whatever the weather. It's my pleasure to welcome Beth O'Leary. Beth, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. It's so wonderful to have you. We've had tons of listeners request that we have you on the show, so it's always wonderful when we can make them happy that way. So, (laughs) Beth, before we start talking about the wake-up call, can you take us through your journey to publication? So I know you wrote your debut while on a train journey to and from work, but can you take us through the process after that in terms of landing an agent and then selling the flat check? Yeah, absolutely. So The Flat Share was not the first novel I had tried to get an agent with by any stretch. So I actually finished my first novel when I was 15. It was absolutely terrible. Uh, (laughs) But I learned so, so much from finishing a novel, you know, and I wrote several books and tried to get an agent multiple times with, with each of those manuscripts. And I think I got one full read. I don't think I ever got more than one full read on any of those before. When I was writing The Flat Share, I had a job as a editorial assistant in a publishing house that did like licensed publishing. So I did like activity books that went alongside TV shows for kids, basically. And that was amazing. It's hard to say like how much of an impact that made on me, I think, because I was in a place where I could see even though I wasn't in the team that made the kind of books that I wanted to write, I could see that it was happening and it really did happen to people. So I think that gave me a lot of confidence with this one, or at least gave me the kind of like, you know, why not me? I can have a go (laughs) feeling. And like you said, I wrote it on the train, which was great writing time for me because it was just sort of allocated chunks in the day. I think one of the things that's really hard when you're working full time and trying to write is just giving yourself regular writing slots. So that's what the the train journey was for me. And then I looked for, I kind of looked more selectively for agents this time around, I would say. I was a bit more informed and I wanted somebody who was essentially kind of the equivalent of what I was trying to be in my job. So somebody who was in a big organization that had like the resource and the I guess, reputation in the industry, but I wanted someone who was new and hungry. (laughs) Um, And I kind of did tons and tons of Googling and online stalking. (laughs) And I found a handful of agents and I sent probably the flat share to about six, five or six agents. And only one asked to read more than the first three chapters. All the others turn it down on on partial and that person is now my absolute right hand woman my agent who I couldn't do this without I was one of her first authors she had one other big author but she was really actively building a list she was super upfront with me about that and the fact that she didn't have a lot of experience and I was like cool that was that was what I was after and yeah I mean honestly I'm I'm, I'm making it sound like I was very I the whole time I was just I remember her email coming in and just feeling like giddy with like, I just couldn't believe that someone wanted to read the whole thing. Like I, I, I wish I could just go back to the moment when I saw that email and my heart just started thundering. (laughs) I love all of that. And I love your intentionality with regards to getting the agent because so many writers make the mistake of going, I want the head of the agency. Mm. I want the 
big, you know, big cheese and they need to represent me. But then you become a really small fish in a huge pond and you get overlooked. So I love Mm. your strategy. It was really, really smart. And once she offered you representation, Beth, how long did it take then? Did you guys revise the novel together and how long did it take to sell after that? Yeah, it was very interesting, actually. So having said that, nobody else was even interested in reading past the first three chapters. And actually, I will say I had to chase my agent. <laughs> I don't mention this very often. I sometimes do to her. But she she didn't get back to me. And you know how you always think, oh, I don't want to make a fuss. But it did say on their auto reply, like, if you don't hear from us in eight weeks, you know, do feel free to get in touch again. And I just thought, I'm just, I'm going to do that because I'm sure it's just because like, if she really liked it, she would have contacted me by now, but I'm just going to do it. And I did contact her and I think she had just like, it slipped through the cracks. And then she picked up and was like, oh gosh, yeah, I actually do want to read the rest of this. So always worth a chase is the other thing I'd say, a gentle plight chase, just in case. But yeah, so we worked on the novel quite a lot. So those first three chapters, I actually think were quite weak. And looking back now, one of the main things that we did was take a lot of content out of the beginning of the novel. I think I, I don't know, I had this tendency and I think this is like quite a common sort of when you're quite new to writing, like I write a lot of stuff that's useful for me in the beginning, like me getting to know the character, their day, like what are they up to? And then the thing that needs to happen happens in like chapter six. And it was a little bit like that. And so we kind of cut loads from the first 10 chapters and tightened up the beginning, did a little bit of work later on on it. And she shared it with her team internally. And actually the rights team got super excited. They were like, we love this. And so she contacted me like, oh, it's Frankfurt Book Fair, the big book fair over here coming up. And they would actually really like to sort of spotlight this title. Can you turn around the last edits on it really quickly? So that was the first inkling I had that, oh my gosh, maybe, you know, m- maybe this is actually going to sell somewhere. So I stayed up late, like <laughs> doing the last tweaks and we kind of went out with it around the time of the fair. And that was just when the whirlwind started. Like it was a phone call saying, you know, that it had been preempted in the UK for a two book deal. I I couldn't imagine that anybody would want, like the idea that someone would want another book from me, the kind of trust in that, like, and the respect in that saying like, we want to buy something else you do that you've not even done yet. (laughs) I just was totally blown away. And then it started to snowball with countries from across the world, you know, picking, picking up rights in different languages. That is just all incredible. And there's so much to unpack there. So I'm going to even go back. So one, I know that we've got so many listeners who heard about you nudging after eight weeks who are like, oh my God, yes, please. Because this is one of the questions we get all the time in our Q&A. Is it impolite to nudge? At what point can we say, have you followed up? Because they've had it now for months on end. And, you know, Beth did it and it had fallen through the cracks. So that's something for writers to do. You know, obviously don't be the person who nudges after a week. Don't ever be that person person but if it's been the period of time in which they say nudge then by all means go ahead and nudge the other thing I want to say is when you have a more junior agent they prepared to put in the work to do those edits with you you know in terms of her saying okay the first three chapters need work you know if you'd gone to a bigger agent they wouldn't have had time to do all those edits with you so that's sometimes a really good reason to be with the more junior agent who's prepared to do that and I also love that it wasn't a linear approach for you that it wasn't you went out a publisher got it then they sold off foreign rights so it's it's incredible like how this all happened now Beth the thing I want to ask about is the kind of success you had straight out the gate it is the stuff of literal dreams and yet it must come with a lot of pressure because I've seen so many authors who have this kind of success out the gate and then you don't see another book from them for like 
years afterwards because they're debilitated with fear that what they write next is not going to be as good as the first one. And so it can really mess with your head. But you have published consistently one book a year. So take us through that as well. Thank you. I really appreciate that question. And it's a very writerly question for a very writerly podcast, because I do think that is something that I almost it's taken me a while to even talk about because I feel I felt like it was my dream coming true. And I felt so lucky and I felt the weight of that. Like I almost felt like I couldn't say a single bad thing was ever happening or that anything about it was anything less than perfect because I was so conscious of being so grateful. And I think that meant writing the next novel was really hard, to be honest. And I was so determined. So I was able to quit my day job. Like I, the, the US deal came through and I did a big spreadsheet with my boyfriend and we were like, I think I can quit my job and like write books for my job, <laughs> which I, I just was like, I can't believe I get to do this. But that also meant that when I sat down at my desk, you know, having got myself all this nice setup for writing at home, I was I'd never written like that before. You know, I'd written as a hobby and a passion and I'd squeeze writing in and little, and suddenly I would sit down at 8am and I'd be like, I'm going to try so hard because I want this to be, I want this book to, to live up to it. And, and all the time that I was sort of writing momentum was building for the Fletcher because it was a while before it published. And I was kind of feeling this love start to really grow for this story, which was incredible, but also terrifying because I thought, how am I ever going to keep these people this happy and and having a readership is so it's such a privilege and I didn't want to lose them (laughs) it's like please stay with me (laughs) so that I get to do this forever so I definitely I got really in my own head with it and I'd say a couple of things that I find helpful I mean I know it's a unique position but things that I found really helpful one was just making sure that I get out and do something so I I volunteered at at a lunch club for isolated older people in my area so it was just a day a week going and sitting down with a load of people over the age of 90 and just talking about other stuff the things in their lives stories about the war like it was so grounding and I would come away having you know washed pans and it just kind of the real it just felt very real and I think the rest of my life just suddenly felt like it become very surreal so that was really good and getting out the house and talking to people you don't know very well because it can be quite an isolating job if you're used to working in an environment with other people and the other thing I did is I stopped reading the positive reviews of the flat share after a while because I'd find myself saying I would read it and I'd be like, oh my gosh, yes, they loved this about it. And then I think, but I haven't done that in the next book. I'm not doing that in the next book. So even compliments were becoming something I was essentially able to beat myself up with. (laughs) Yeah. And it's amazing because most writers are like, I'm not going to read the negative reviews, but the positive (laughs) things can be just as debilitating if you take them on too much. So I think the lesson Mm. here is just don't read reviews in general. And two, I love how you grounded yourself because that's humbling because when you have this kind of success in one part of your life, it can feel like that is the biggest thing in the world, right? Because it's such a big thing in your field, in your industry, it feels like the biggest thing in the world. But you step away from it and you talk to people who've lived these long and interesting lives and who've lived through wars and you're able to put your success in context and you're able to say, this is amazing but I'm going to write something else now and I want to do good by my readers, but also, you know, finding the joy in why you did it in the first place, I think is also really important. Exactly. 
Yeah. And actually I made quite a, I don't know how conscious this was looking back. It's hard to say, but I, I made a choice to go in quite a different direction with my second novel. So the switch is a, a story about a grandmother and a granddaughter who swap lives and homes for two months. And so it's really a family story, whereas the flat share, you know, it's a, it's a romance and it sort of alternates perspectives between the two love interests. So even though they are, you know, they're both very much me books and but I, I I think in some ways that helped as well because I wasn't trying to do the same exact thing again and I think that I wonder if part of that was protective because it was a little bit like you can't directly compare them because they're not exactly the same so I can't, I can't have disappointed you. <laughs> I, I feel like that's smart you know it is a smart approach but was there pushback to that were there people who were like what the hell is this I came for the Fletcher and this is what I got instead? Oh, that's a great question. So there was no pushback on that from my publishers. They didn't have any concerns about it. They did work with me quite a lot on the content of that book and making sure that it had like tonally was similar to the flat share. But readers, I definitely, I mean, I find with every book, because each of my books, I've really, I've learned like you cannot please everyone and, and I can't do everything in every book. And I actually don't like to, like I, I like to have, I quite like having quite a lot of variety within the sphere of what I do and so some of them are more family centered some of them are a little bit darker some of them are more fun and tropey and so I've sort of I'm now at a position where I've got enough of a backlist that actually that's a lovely thing because like when people come to my events in the signing queue they'll say like oh my favorite's the road trip and I think oh you're a road trip reader <laughs> like there's a sort of things that people like are different in each of them so I think maybe at the time, I'm trying to think back, there were people that felt that the switch didn't give them, you know, the romance that they got from the first. But now I have a lot of readers who their favorite is the switch and they they would like me to do another sort of novel like that. So, yeah, yeah, you can't please everybody all the time and nor should you try to, you know, what's Mm. within our control as writers is writing the best damn version of whatever story we're working on at the time. And once it gets published, it goes to our readers and it becomes theirs and it becomes the critics and we we have to let go of it, right? We, we mm. have no control over how people are going to be in conversation with our work. So that's also a good mm. lesson to be able to step away from it. Okay, so for our listeners who are like, Bianca, stop talking about all the stuff. We want to talk about the book. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to read you the mm-hmm. flat copy of The Wake Up Call. Here we go at the back. So two hotel receptionists and arch rivals, dun, 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 find a collection of old wedding rings and compete to return them to their owners, discovering their own love story along the way. It's the busiest season of the year and Forest Manor Hotel is quite literally falling apart. So when Izzy and Lucas are given the same shift on the hotel's front desk, they have no choice but to put their differences aside and see it through. The hotel won't stay afloat beyond Christmas without some sort of miracle, but when Izzy returns a guest's lost wedding ring, the reward convinces management that this might be the way to fix everything. With four rings still sitting in the lost and found, the race is on for Izzy and Lucas to save their beloved hotel and their jobs. As their bitter rivalry turns into something much more complicated, Izzy and Lucas begin to wonder if there's more at stake here than the hotel's future can the two of them make it through the season with their hearts intact so that is our flap copy something I want to chat to you about Beth is let's talk about the grumpy sunshine trope and why we love it so much going back to Pride and Prejudice why is this a trope you think readers love so much Oh, that's a great question. I love it. So I'm just going to try and think about why I love it so much. And actually, you know, part of what I really did with the wake up call was just, 
lean in and to some of the tropes that I love as a reader. So, you know, enemies to lovers and all of those joyful things. But yeah, Crumpy Sunshine. I think there's something about coaxing the hidden joy out of somebody that is just very appealing. And I just, I love writing people who aren't what they first seem and characters who all of my characters really tend to be people that they're a little, I always say they're a little bit bruised one way or another. And because I think real people are, and, you know, they have things they're dealing with. And so they tend to have walls up and we need to work to to sort of figure out who they really are. And I do just think there's some satisfaction in the the sunny person just un, unpeeling the layers of the grumpy one and, and us really realizing that they're just as lovely as the other. <laughs> yeah, something you've said now makes a lot of sense to me in terms of the it almost feels like it's like a lock and key scenario. So their sunshine is hidden behind a lock and it takes one specific <laughs> person to be the key that's going to unlock that. So it also kind of goes into the soulmates trope because mm. their sunshine isn't going to be unlocked for just everybody, right? It takes that particular person to be able to unlock it. So mm. I think that's perhaps as well why it's so satisfying. Yes, definitely the satisfaction of, of a pairing that brings out the best in both person. Yeah. Right. So for our listeners, you'll be very happy to know that Beth had a prologue. It was not called a prologue. It was called December 2021. It is a letter, but it is definitely a prologue and it is a huge curiosity seed. So we have a letter from Izzy to Lucas. It starts with, I have a confession to make. I'm kind of nervous about it. And this is a huge clue because straight after this, we dive into the chapters that come and we're like, this doesn't add up. How could she have sent this letter and yet they're at this weird stage that they're at? So Beth, on the podcast, we talk about curiosity seeds, planting something that's going to immediately make the reader curious. So they keep turning pages to put all the puzzle pieces together and they coming up with theories as the story is going on, which means they're actively involved in the story rather than being a passive recipient of it. So can we talk a bit about how how much fun you had with this and how you do it in terms of knowing when to drop a clue and when to withdraw, how to give the reader just enough that keeps them reading without frustrating the hell out of them. Yes, I love the term curiosity seed. I've not heard that before. I increasingly like to start my books exactly where I want to be, if that makes sense. So whatever it is that excites me about the idea, in this case, I really love the enemies to lovers I wanted to have them there as quickly as possible but I also wanted to have you asking the question why do they hate each other straight away and to give you a little bit more of that for instance with the road trip I knew I wanted it to be about two exes crashing cars on their way to a mutual friend's wedding and have to get in the same car so then I was like I'm just going to start with the crash like I think you know for instance when I was writing the flat show the temptation would have been to start earlier than that so I think that helps get the curiosity up straight away because I'm giving you the thing that I find most exciting straight up, <laughs> like you're in there. And in terms of that kind of when to drop in those little clues and moments through a book, for me, and this is a frustrating piece of advice because it's it's hard to unpack, but it is quite instinctive. It's almost like a beat in music for me, I think. Like I will feel almost like a sense of like, eh, this isn't, I've not got enough going on here. Like, or I, I'm losing momentum in this scene and almost always that's a sign for me that I need to inject something that makes you go oh what and so I sort of try really hard when I'm writing to listen to that gut feeling that's saying because it's saying all kinds of things they'll talk to you know but so much of 
it for me is kind of listening to the feeling. And I have come to think that a lot of the time when I feel like this scene's not going well or got a bit of writer's block or like I don't really want to write this scene, it's because that's my gut telling me that I'm not doing enough with it or I'm not writing quite the right direction. And so often, I mean, I'm getting better at it, but so often my response to that has to be step away, work out kind of what you should be doing, why it's not feeling quite right. And then I inevitably end up, I usually end up deleting about 5,000 words at that point, the last 5,000 words I've written. It's always really annoying (laughs) because I wish I could realize 5,000 words earlier, but it seems to take about that much time for me to be like, no, no, I'm going the wrong way. And I've gone wrong here somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you've got to write all of that to figure out it's not working. At least that's, that's my experience. And what you've said there is the same as my experience. I know when I'm sitting down to write a scene and I'm trying and I'm like, I'll come back to this later, or I really don't want to write it, then I realize there isn't enough there. And I try and reframe it and go, what can I do with the scene to make it the scene that I'm most excited about writing, mm. as opposed to trying to put it off? So what can I inject? How can I reframe it and come at it differently so that it becomes super exciting as opposed to, okay, I just got to get past this damn thing so that I can get to the really good parts. So That brings me to a question about how much you plot beforehand, Beth. How much is plotting? How much is pantsing? How much outlining do you do ahead of time? So this varies a little bit per book now. I would say as a general rule, I'm not a plotter. I start with a question or an idea that intrigues me. So I I love that stage, coming up with a weird way two people could meet. Or like one of the things I love doing with my books is taking a kind of outlandish scenario and trying to make it feel grounded. And then kind of character comes next. I find myself starting to imagine scenes or things that might happen or places they might go or, you know, snippets of conversation. And I start to get to a point where my head feels a bit full. And sometimes at that stage, I will write some stuff down. I quite like using tools that are more not a list, like where I can move things around and have them next to each other. And that's partly because I don't always know when things happen and I feel a bit stressed by having to put an order on it. I'm like, I know there's going to be a bit in the car that's going to be cute, <laughs> but I I don't, I can't tell you when. I don't like the, the restriction of it. So I sometimes use like mind mapping tools to just, and I don't connect them with arrows. I literally just blob things all over a page. And what I tend to do is a couple of times, I would say this is average, a couple of times or three times in a book, I will do that again. When my head starts to feel really full and I'm like, oh, or I've just had an idea where where I think, oh, actually, what if that character had previously been with that character? And then, and then I start to feel like I need to write this down somewhere. But invariably, I don't look at those documents again. Like it's the process of putting those things on the page that is what it's all about. And then I'm back in the chapters. And for me, I, I discover the book really by writing it, which is frustrating sometimes like there's an absolute joy in it because it's like I'm discovering it and it's so exciting and I feel like I turn a corner and someone's there who I never even knew came out of my brain (laughs) and that's like an amazing feeling but it is also sometimes I mean I I would say for every book I write I probably delete between 50 and 100,000 words probably and you know I'd like to be more efficient than that. You know what? It's not the writer's job to be efficient. It's our job to create art and art is not efficient. I'm always fascinated by writers who plot everything out ahead of time, each chapter, each action beat, each plot point, and they stick to it. And I'm just in awe of that because to me, that's 
I'm so bored by that because I'm like, you are never going to be surprised, but Mm. they don't want surprises. And I love nothing more than when my characters do something or say something that I was not in any way expecting. And I'm like, where the hell did that come from? That is gold. I'm chasing after that. (laughs) But for each time you've got to chase after a character, they might lead you into a dead end and then you've got to delete and backtrack. But your process is your process. And honestly, I honestly don't believe anything's wasted. No, I really cling to that phrase <laughs> that that nothing you write is wasted because but just because I delete so much and I write very fast or at least what I consider to be fast. It feels fast to me and that helps. Like I I write better when I'm writing fast, but it does again in the same way that with not plotting, it does mean I'm more likely to lead myself down the wrong track because I'll be speeding away down somewhere and then I'll think two days later like I think I've got a bit carried away and I don't think this should happen at all (laughs) so the things you delete do you delete them completely or do you work in something like Scrivener whereby you can delete a whole bunch of things but it's still there in case you ever need to go back to it or are you cutthroat you're like this is it you are out so for every book I have a document called offcuts and that is where it goes and I do return to that and I do sometimes pull out the odd it's rarely a whole scene often even like so for instance the novel I'm working on at the moment I took out about 6,000 words and I thought actually the scene's just come in the wrong place I need to come about 20,000 words later like it's way too soon for this and so then I got to 20,000 words later and I was like great I've like written this scene already so I'll just go and get it <laughs> and I go into my offcuts document and I'm like no like none of this is usable even though it's the same scene because these characters have evolved so much and none of this chat is relevant and I basically there's about three lines in this that are useful so sometimes it's it's like that but often I find when I'm unwilling to delete a scene when I I kind of think oh but we can't lose this bit there's like actually about two lines that I like and they will be like maybe a joke or a really cute you know a description or something so sometimes those will chime in my head and I'll go back and find those but to be honest the offcuts document you know it is a delete button but it just makes me feel better because it's not disappeared (laughs) yeah it feels like a safety net just in Mm -hmm. case you know it's there just in case and even if you're not going to use it at least you know it's there last question before we have to finish our interview which has just flown by so Beth this is a very competitive genre it's really difficult for emerging writers to break through what's your advice for those writing in it and and what do you think it is that readers really connect with oh that's a great question so I would say what readers really connect with is characters who they fall in love with. And those aren't always characters who are lovable. So I would invite you to kind of dig deep into character and not think too much about writing for the person that you think should be in this sort of book or whatever, but just writing someone who feels really real to you and, and interesting to you and trust that other people will will feel that way about them too. I would also say try to think about how you could because I, you know, I write commercial fiction. My books, I want them to be on supermarket shelves. And to get in those spaces, you need to have an idea that's really snappy and that someone can tell a salesperson in two sentences and they will get really excited about. So try and make sure that the essence of your idea and what really excites you is something that you can convey in a snapshot. I think that really, really helps in this area and with getting an agent if you can kind of summarize it in a way that makes you go "Ooh, interesting (laughs) like as soon as you hear it 
Excellent advice. So that's the hook that we're always talking about. You know, it needs to be crystallized into a kind of elevator pitch that's a sentence or two. And people go, oh my God, I can immediately imagine that. And it sounds absolutely fascinating. Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been a wonderful conversation. For our listeners, we are linking to the Wake Up Call on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy it there, you're supporting an independent bookstore and the podcast at the same time. We hope to have you back next time, Beth. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.